Today's passage will come from Exodus 34:29-35. Exodus 34:29-35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in the, on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what all he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. So good to be together. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord Jesus, here we are, and it's another Sunday, and I need you to do what only you can do, and that is to use the word of God and to help us to see things here that we wouldn't see unless you showed up. And, and so whether we're um, in the middle of this room listening right now or over uh, the streaming uh, of this service or, or whether it's an eventual uh, in a podcast or some other form, Lord, I, I'm praying that you by your spirit would just put a pause in people's hearts and minds and let them see and hear and behold wonderful things about you. So we ask you to be our teacher and our helper because we need help and we need to learn. So come now, empower my words and open our hearts to what it is that you want to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the home that I grew up, on the wall that led to the uh, main floor bathroom, there were two yellow school buses that were prominently displayed on that wall, and each of those school buses, one for my sister and one for me, had 12 little spots for a picture to go in them. Any of you have such a thing in your home growing up? Something? No? Well, okay, maybe you don't want to admit it. So anyways, <laughs> this, this um, school bus was to have each year put the school picture in it. So kindergarten, picture went in, first grade, second grade. In, in elementary school, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, they could see the kind of the, 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 the progression and you see the different years. Junior high, yeah, not so much. It wasn't so cool because here's what would happen. My friends would come over and, um, and, and invariably they'd say, hey, where's the bathroom? And I'd go, oh, it's around the corner. And so then they'd go and they'd come back with this big smile on their face. They're like, man, fifth grade was hard, wasn't it? You know, so... <laughs> And it, and it was. There was the there were the buck teeth years. There were the braces years. There was the headgear season. There was a, a body wave thing. We're not going to go into that. And it was just it, there. There were seasons of just sheer ugliness that were just embarrassing. When I went off to college and I came back home, that um, school bus kind of took on a little bit of a, a different viewpoint because I could look at that school bus and in adulthood be able to trace the growth personally, to be able to kind of see the, the various seasons, the moments of my life. So that, that school bus had an entirely different context for me as I became an adult. It, it actually sort of became a, a record, if you will, of the history of my life, because each of those pictures represented a particular season, a particular time period. If you will, it was a, a record of my history. And therefore, in my adulthood, I could look at those pictures, and well, maybe they weren't so attractive, but they were, they were part of my story. 
The great thing about the book of Exodus is it's a lot like that school bus. There are moments that just aren't real pretty. There are moments, frankly, you'd almost rather forget. And yet what it is, is a, it's a record of the story of what God is doing. It's, it's a glimpse in these small little pictures of what is to come, specifically what's going to come in the New Covenant in the New Testament. The beautiful thing about the, the book of Exodus is that there are concepts, ideas, um, um, word pictures that are used in this book that show up again in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why I think we love studying the book of Exodus. In fact, some of you have talked to me about the fact that when we started this study, you were a little surprised that uh, the book of Exodus was so interesting. See, what it is, is it's, it's a book that lays the foundation for so many things in the future. Concepts like the Passover, the idea of a sacrificial lamb, the burning bush, the name of God, the Ten Commandments, the deliverance from slavery, and even, even the concept of redemption. They're all in elementary form in the book of Exodus. Now, the beautiful thing about this book is that there are times when you can make a connection directly from Exodus, and specifically to some concept, some idea in the New Testament. Our text today, Exodus 34, 29 to 35, is one of those great texts where we don't have to guess about the transferability of this text into the New Testament. Because the Apostle Paul uses this very account in Exodus 34 to make a very important point in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so what we're going to do today is spend part of our time looking at Exodus 34 and then the bulk of our time looking at 2 Corinthians 3 for you to be able to see the connection between the New Testament and the Old, for you to see the elementary elements of what we find in Exodus 34 and how it blossoms into full color and and vibrant beauty in the New Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to trace the glory of God in Moses to the glory of God in the Gospel and then to the glory of God in you. And I think you're going to see this this beautiful trajectory of God's grace. It's a glorious picture. So, let's start here with the glory of God in Moses. Last week we learned that God is a God of second chances. This came after a very dark season in Israel's history connected to the golden calf. Moses was gone 40 days, came down, saw rampant idolatry and immorality, The covenant of God is broken. And Moses, in Exodus chapter 34, goes back up the mountain and brings two new tablets up with him, and God reestablishes his covenant with Israel. And what we learned last week was that basically God doesn't add anything new to this relationship that he'd offered to them before. He just essentially offers to them a second chance. And so that's where we were last week in Exodus 34. In verse 29 of that same chapter, now we read the account of Moses coming down the mountain. Verse 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So verse 29 tells us that as Moses comes down from the mountain, he has these two new tablets, the the, the tablets, if you will, of the second chance, that there was something different about Moses. And, And this is important because previously, last week we said that basically everything that God said was exactly the same as what he had said before, but last time when Moses came down from the mountain, he just looked like more like regular old Moses. But this time when he came down, his face 
was materially different. His face was illuminated, and the text tells us that Moses did not know that his face shone, and then it connects it to the fact of the reason why his face was aglow. It was aglow because he had been talking with God. So apparently what had happened during these 40 days, Moses had been in God's presence, and as a result of that, his skin was reflecting the eminent display, the afterglow, if you will, of God's glory. He had been exposed to the beautiful presence of God, and his face showed it. So whatever was emanating from his face indicated that Moses had been with God. The Hebrew here literally says, the skin of his face sent out horns. Now, this is kind of a funny story behind this, this translation. It, it needs to be reinterpreted in that there's things protruding from his face like glory, not like horns. Well, in, in the, um, the time period of the Renaissance and the medieval period, the Latin Vulgate translated that so literally that when Michelangelo developed a um, caricature of uh, Moses, he put horns on him. So this is why you interpret the Bible carefully so you don't put horns on people that shouldn't have them. Okay, so there we go. He's got horns. And what, what Michelangelo is trying to get at is what the Bible is trying to get at, which is there's something different about the face of Moses, but it wasn't horns. It was that there was some sort of glow coming from his face that it was clearly moving towards people from the very countenance of this man of God. The meaning is simply that Moses' face reflected the glory of the holiness of the God with whom he had been with for 40 days. Now, the effect in verse 30 is interesting. The people of Israel, when they saw Moses' face glowing, they were afraid. Look at verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So there was, there was something about Moses' countenance, not only that was clearly different, but it also was kind of spooky. It, it, it made them nervous. It made them fearful. It made them afraid. And... This frankly makes sense that when there's this sort of display of someone having been in the presence of God, it creates a little bit of fear or foreboding in the hearts of those who are near that person who's been near or that near to God. There's something about the power, the otherness, the purity, and the mystery of the glory of God that even if it's just reflected in the face of someone who's been near God, creates a little bit of fear in the heart of mere mortal people. Isaiah would be a great example of this. In Isaiah chapter 6, he goes into the temple and is able to see the Lord in his glory. Here's these angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in response, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So the people of Israel are not out of line with their response. In fact, their reaction is part of God's design in this moment. God wants these people to know that the God on that mountain is a seriously holy God. That's the whole point of the mountain in the first place. The reason God brought them there, the reason there was smoke and fire, it was to remind the people that God is holy and they are not. And the fact of the matter is God is going to deliver his law again. He's going to deliver it through Moses. And when Moses speaks, God wants these people to know when Moses is telling you, it's not just Moses' words, these are my words. Thus the glow. 
Look at verse 31. Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and notice what he did. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. So the point here is that Moses is delivering the word of God, and his face glowing is a validation that this is really God's word. Then something very interesting happens. Look at verse 33. Afterward, all the people came near. That's verse 32, sorry. Verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses finalizes his words to his people, finishes his communication to them, places a veil over his face, and then the text continues, verses 34 and 35, that whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' was, uh, skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So it sounds as though Moses continues to have this veil up and down sort of relationship with the people of Israel and that this eminent glow of Moses was something that was a part of his life and ministry, not just in this moment, but it continued for a while. So so why is this veil here? What's the deal with the veil? Well, the veil, first and foremost, is to be a comfort to the people. It was to mitigate, if you will, the fear of the people that they would have, that every time they saw Moses, something about his face was just kind of alarming. I mean, he looked really different, and it was a bit scary. Doug Stewart in his commentary says this, Therefore the veil he donned was undoubtedly for the people's sake, not because his unveiled face could physically harm them, but because it apparently scared them so much psychologically that they found it hard to be near him. The people presumably were distracted and unnerved by whatever came from Moses' face. So this, this glow is designed to both confirm Moses as leader, to affirm Yahweh's presence on that mountain. He comes down from the mountain, clearly Moses has met with God, his face looks entirely different, to also once again demonstrate Yahweh's supremacy and also to motivate the people for obedience, that the law that they are going to receive from Moses needs to be taken very, very seriously. So the glow of Moses' countenance gave the message that he delivered a new level of meaning and a new level of depth. In other words... The face of Moses reflecting the glory of God proved that what Moses was talking about was real. The words coming from his mouth were not just his words, they were God's words. These commands were God's commands, and the glory of God expressed in the face of Moses gave people the evidence that they were really hearing from God. So here's what Exodus 34 is about. It is about the glory of God in the face of Moses is connecting their lives to the very life of their God. It's connecting their lives to the life of God. God communicates Through Moses, he illuminates his face so the people know that what they're hearing and how they're being commanded to live has come from, not from Moses, but from a holy, supreme God, from their God. 
So that's the glory of God in Moses. Now, let's look at, secondly, the glory of God in the gospel. Take your Bible, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As I said earlier, the story in Exodus 34 is then used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he talks about the gospel. Again, keep in mind that the glory of of Moses was designed to connect the glory of God to the people's lives. And Paul does the exact same thing as it relates to the gospel. Now, by way of background, 2 Corinthians records, obviously, a second letter that Paul had written to the church at Corinth. He had a very interesting relationship with this church. It was um, complicated at best, cantankerous at worst. People in that church were accusing the Apostle Paul of maybe not having the kind of credibility that he should. And in large part, their charges were based on the fact that although Paul claimed to be an apostle of Jesus, although he claimed to live in the resurrected power of Christ, although he claimed to be empowered by the Spirit, the fact of the matter was is that Paul had a whole lot of suffering in his life. And so they looked at that suffering and they said, if you were an apostle really anointed by God, you wouldn't have all this suffering and this hardship. And so... The Apostle Paul is trying to validate and to defend his ministry. And chapter 3 is really the pinnacle of that argument. And what he does is suggest that the legitimacy of his ministry comes from the glory of the gospel mediated by the Spirit. So, not dissimilar to Moses, Paul's authority is being questioned and Paul, therefore, appeals to the greater glory of the gospel as the evidence that he really is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is pretty clearly stated in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Here's what the text says. Now, if the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, you know what that means, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So what Paul does here is he uses the glory concept in Exodus 34 as the basis of talking about the glory of the new covenant, or what he calls here the ministry of the Spirit. He identifies that there certainly was glory in the ministry of condemnation. There was glory in the ministry of the law. How so? Well, the law displayed the very character of God, so there was glory in it. That's why Moses' face was aglow, because it came from the very essence of the holiness of God. So when Moses is communicating the law of God, he is communicating the essence of what God's character is all about. So there is glory in the Old Covenant. There is glory in the law. The Ten Commandments and all of its derivative laws and the Old Testament are all reflective of this glorious character of their God called Yahweh. There was glory all over this. But what Paul is saying is that there's even greater glory in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and in the work of Jesus. He calls it here the ministry of righteousness. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 8 or verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
The ministry of righteousness means that the law in and of itself could never really create righteousness. It laid out a righteous standard so it had its glory, but the fact of the matter is because of human beings and because of our sinfulness, there's no ability to fully keep the law. Therefore, the law continually communicates, you're not like God, you're not like God, you're not like God. You can try and obey, but eventually you come to the point where you realize, I can't keep this law perfectly, and that's the point, and that's the glory of the law. And Paul says there's even a greater glory, the glory of the ministry of righteousness that comes in the new covenant. That new covenant comes to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus ushers in a gloriously new day. He inaugurates the coming of the glory of God in the gospel. He comes to earth, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us. Romans chapter 8. He dies in order so that we can keep the law, not externally, internally, and legally, that God declares over us, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a glorious statement. That means that God in Christ has declared you to keep, to have kept the law absolutely perfectly, even though you and God and everyone else knows you haven't. It is grace. It is a gift. And it is glorious. Jesus comes to satisfy the just demands of God's holiness so that God could be both just and justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 26. The effect then is that those who receive Christ's death, they are born again. They're given a new heart. They're declared to be righteous. They're filled with the Spirit. They're given a new heart. They're set on a new path of freedom. They are given a new life. Their life is now connected to the glory of God in a way that is stunning and sweeping and powerful and life-changing. This is the gospel. This is the new covenant. This is the new era of redemption that Exodus is pointing towards in its elementary fashion. A time when the law of God would not come from a mountain and from a man named Moses, but now the law would be written on the hearts of God's people by the Spirit. And when that happens, when a person is born again, when Christ becomes one's Savior, suddenly now obedience is not just something you must do, it is something that you want to do. And that flip is a miracle. That is a miracle. Suddenly, old desires are replaced with new. Resistance, now there's a desire to follow. Where you looked at the law before and it made you mad, now it makes you glad. Once you had to do it, now you want to do it. And that change is the glory of the new covenant. It is the essence of the gospel and it is the reason why we sing. Because it is Jesus who made that possible. Look at verses 10 to 17, 2 Corinthians 3. The gospel has a glory to it that surpasses the old in verse 10. It's permanent in verse 11. It creates assurance in verse 12. It's inaugurated by Jesus in 14. And it involves the Spirit in verse 17. And then finally and gloriously, it brings freedom in verse 17. Just listen to the beauty of what Paul says here in verses 10 to 17. Indeed, in this case... 
what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Notice that he's just flipped the veil metaphor. No longer is the veil just over Moses. Now where is the veil? Now the veil is in front of every person's mind and heart who doesn't know Christ. Now the veil has extended, not from Moses. Now the veil is in front of everyone, not in order to protect the glory, but because the veil inhibits them to see the glory. See what he's doing? And then he says this, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the Old Covenant, the law, Moses' message, it all had glory connected to it. It wasn't bad. It was incredibly good. It revealed, the law revealed what God was like. It revealed what people are like. The law displayed the glory of God, but it was not the whole story. It wasn't the entire story. And what what Paul does is to press this analogy so that the gospel is clear and evident. Verse 15, he says that when Moses is read, there's a veil that lies over their hearts. What does that mean? It means that we're natural born sinners. There's a veil That if you left to yourself, you would never understand or believe that Jesus died for your sins. You would be convinced, naturally, that you were not as bad as what you really are. You would be convinced that you're righteous when you're not. That's the beauty of what the Bible does. In fact, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's like one of the first things you've got to get into your head. That the Bible says that we're all sinners. And initially, when you hear that, you may be offended. And me, a sinner? And what happens is that the Bible, over time, through the Spirit, the veil begins to lift. And you realize, you know what? I am a sinner. I am. And not just what I do. I'm a sinner fundamentally in who I am. You see, what happens is that the Spirit of God lifts the veil and suddenly, according to the Bible, you see yourself and you see Christ clearly when before you didn't. So those of you who've received Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Whether it was a Sunday school or it was a parent or whether it was a VBS, Vacation Bible School, or some other gospel message, a radio program that you heard or some sort of evangelistic campaign, suddenly you may have heard the gospel once, it may have been the hundredth time, and something changed in that moment. You understood, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and I am compelled to receive Christ. In that moment, you know what happened? The veil came off, your eyes saw, and you were born again. You saw the beauty of who Christ really was. And you need to know that when that moment happened, Certainly you believed and certainly you received, but you did not do that alone. The Bible tells us that God was behind that. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what happens in conversion. 
Your darkened heart suddenly has light shown into it. It's the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Suddenly it all makes sense. Your sin, His atonement, the cross, your need, and you run to receive Christ. And in that moment, the Bible says you are born again, that something eternally and irrevocably is altered at the very core of who you are. You are the same person physically, but you know and God knows, and people who hang out with you know, something about you, dude, is so incredibly different. That's right. I am a different person from the inside out. And only God can do that through the gospel. We behold the beauty of God's glory in the gospel when suddenly we understand that we are rescued from our slavery to sin. We are rescued from our inability to keep God's law. We are rescued from our total impotence to do anything about it on our own. So when Paul says that there's this glory in the gospel that was greater than the glory in Exodus 34, he's talking about a glory that brings freedom where there used to be fear. So before, the people saw the glory of God in the face of Moses, and they were afraid, so he had to put a veil over his face. And in the New Testament, the veil is reversed, and now a veil is on people's uh, hearts and minds who don't see and receive Christ. And when the veil is lifted, there's not fear, there's only freedom. In other words, this whole idea of you being forgiven and being born again, it's not just theoretical, it's not just ethereal, it's not just otherworldly, it's, it's not just God's realm. It is all of that. It's meant to be incredibly practical. It's meant to connect where you live right now. In other words, the idea that no condemnation has been declared over you if you're in Christ Jesus, that you have been born again, that you've been regenerated, that you now are a new person. That is not something that's meant to be a once momentary sort of decision that has no impact on the rest of your life. It is meant to set you free for the rest of your life so that all of your life is beholding the beauty of the glory in the face of Christ. This is the glory of the gospel. But Paul isn't finished. So the glory of God in the face of Moses, glory of God in the gospel. Here's the second thing, or third thing rather, and that is the glory of God in you. I love, 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 love 2 Corinthians 3.18. One of my most favorite verses in the Bible. I love its vision, its hope, its practicality. Paul says this. It sings. It sings with the beauty of God. It says this. We all, we're going to unpack this, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. This verse is huge. We could take a month to study it. We're going to try and do it in ten minutes. There's six things that you need to see about this. What does this text say about the glory of God in your life? Here's what it says. First, it says that this is for everyone, and by that I mean everyone who is in Christ. Paul celebrates the glory of God in every follower of Jesus. After talking about this glorious reality of the gospel in verses 3 through 17, he now talks about what it means to live out that gospel. And essentially, he says this, 
that every single person who's a follower of Jesus is in the same position as Moses. You, if you know Christ, have the ability to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. There are no, there's no elite class of citizens. There's no, not reserved just for leaders, not for people who just can get into that cleft of the rock to behold the glory of God. Now the beauty of the new covenant is that the glory of God expressed in the person and work of Jesus is open to all those who are in Christ. That every single one of you here today have the ability and the power to behold the beauty and the glory of the Lord and the person and work of Jesus. Because of the new birth, every one of you is able to behold the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel. Secondly, beholding is contemplating Jesus. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord. What does it mean to behold the glory? New American Standard renders this as beholding as in a mirror. And what they're trying to get to is that you're beholding something that is an image, but not the actual. But don't think of it as you're looking at your reflection, but you're looking at the reflection of Christ in a mirror, that it's an image of Him, but it's not really Him. In other words, you don't actually see physically Christ yet. There will be a day when you see Him. And man, when you see Him, it'll be glorious because you will be like Him and you will see Him as He is. So you'll see Him and then look at yourself and you're like, unbelievable. And by the way, if if we meet in heaven, and I hope that we do, you will be able to tell me and it will be fine. Mark, on September, whatever today is, um, you tried to help us understand the glory of God, and you did an okay job, but you weren't even close. And I'll be high five. Absolutely, I'm okay with that because English language and our limitations—they can't get the full scope. And when you see the glory of God, it's it's inex- it's completely unexplainable in terms of the depth and the beauty of what it is. And you will behold Him, and you will see Him. But for right now, we see an image—not the real, but a reflection of the real. And then the NIV unpacks this even further and says that we contemplate the Lord's glory. And what they're trying to drive at, and both translations are attempting to translate the exact same phrase, and the NIV is trying to get at the fact that it's not just that we're beholding an image, but it is that we're contemplating this image, and you'll see why in a moment. That you're thinking on it, you're meditating on it, you're seeing it. Well, the question is, where do you see the image of Christ? Well, you see it in the Scriptures. You, you contemplate the beauty of Christ when you sing about Him. You, you contemplate the beauty of Christ when you, you hear a sermon about Him. Every Lord's Day, you are beholding the beauty and the glory of Christ. Oh, you're not physically seeing Him, but you are seeing Him. It means that when you spend time in this Word, you spend time tomorrow, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening, and a verse jumps out at the page, and you just your heart beats with passions for Christ, and you're just like, God, I love you so much. Loved me and cared for me, and you, you, and you begin to see Jesus in the text. You're sitting in a in this very room, and oh, I prayed this would happen, and just the right word at the right moment, applied by the Spirit, comes to your heart, and you're able to feel your soul begin to grow, and you see Christ in all of what He is more so than what He was last week. You are beholding Jesus. You're singing a song and the words just connect so well in terms of the depth of their content and you are beginning to see the beauty of Christ. The person, a friend, speaks a word over you, giving you counsel or encouragement. That is beholding the beauty of Christ. So my question to you is this. How's that beholding thing going? 
Let's be honest. I would imagine there's some of you here, this is the first time in a week that you've beholded Christ. And you wonder why your spiritual life is stagnating. Or you come to church and your, your whole orientation is, what am I going to get? Well, how's this going to work for me? And you have opinions and ideas of what this day should be like, when the reality is this day isn't about you. It's not about you. It is about beholding the glory of Christ. And my question is, how's that going? Because when you walk out those doors, you better know if you have beheld Christ or not. And then if you have, what are the implications? Because Paul says this is, this is the beauty of what it means to see Christ. It is to contemplate Him, to behold Him, to see Him. My question is, do you see Him? Because here's what's on the line. What's on the line is transformation. Look what happens next in the text. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So that's the goal. See, the beholding is not just so you can go, wow. The beholding is so you can go, wow, and then say, now what? You behold so you can become. That's the point. See, this is what happens. Moses beholds God, and he becomes something different. Same thing in the New Testament. The the veil is lifted, you behold the glory of Christ, you become someone different. There is a connection between beholding and becoming. Contemplation of Him leads to change in us. The goal of this morning, the goal of your time in the Word, the goal of your small group, the goal of your ABF class, the goal of preaching is so that you, God helping you, can be transformed as you have beheld Christ. One commentary says it this way, in beholding the true glory of the Christ, of the Lord reflected in Christ, our minds become transformed so that we are not conformed to this world and its perceptions and values, but conformed to Christ and the paradoxical pattern of His suffering and resurrection. You realize we live in a dangerous world with lots of things to behold. Lots of things that claim glory and attractiveness and beauty. And the gospel holds up the greater beauty, the greater glory. Teenagers, college students, single adults, listen to me. The world will offer you all sorts of glory and it is all a shell game. There is no greater glory than the glory of the gospel expressed in the face and the person of Jesus. God's ways work. They're the best. They're the right. And they are the safest path in all of the world because it's the way that the creator of the universe has designed the world to work. Fourth, the text tells us that it's incremental. I love this. The glory of God, we're beholding the glory of God being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory to another. So this concept of the transformation is not something that's just theoretical. It's meant to be very practical, very very daily, and very incremental. It says from one degree of glory to another. Back to the school bus. It means that ten years ago you had this degree of glory, and hopefully now you've got this degree of glory. That you can look back at sort of the elementary seasons of your walk with Christ, and that there's a, a clear progression of spiritual growth. And that's where some of you maybe need to wake up today, because you're still back in elementary school, and it's been ten years! It's like, what's going on? How come you're still in grammar school when you're supposed to be in high school when it comes to spiritual growth? 
And the idea is that there's this transformation. You're not beholding the glory of Christ, and the effect is that your spiritual life is at a flat line. What is the solution? The solution is you need to see Jesus in the Word and through worship and through community to be able to experience the fullness of all of what He has for you. The full and final transformation is going to come at the end of the day when Jesus returns, when glorification happens. And until that time, there is simply incremental progress. That incremental progress piece is really helpful. It's helpful if if you struggle with perfectionism. If you look at your life and you wish that there'd be certain things that you could just completely get rid of and you could be done with them. I mean, I'm sure your life is a lot like mine. There's some things in your life you turn from it, and man, you're never going back, not even once. As we sang, you've closed the door, and you're never going back. And there's a bunch of stuff like that, but there's also a bunch of other stuff. That I'd love to close the door, but the door keeps getting kicked open. And that stuff still keeps coming back, still same old temptations, same sort of sort of orientation of my mind and heart, same weaknesses. I mean, toward the end of the year, I'll have a, is all of our staff full, an evaluation time, and sit down with some of our elders. And you know what's so difficult about that? What's so difficult about that is the same issues will show up in my evaluation in 2013 that showed up in 2008. It showed up in 2005. That I could make incremental progress, but at the end of the day, those weaknesses are probably always going to be a part of my life, and I simply have to figure out a way, God helping me, to make incremental changes. And if you look at those things, some of you could get really discouraged and go, man, I'm not doing anything. And my call and encouragement to you would be, sanctification is an incremental progress in some areas. In some ways, it's like, bam, it it changes and you never go back. And in other ways, it's hard and you fight and you fight and you fight and you fight. You may have prayed over and over and over, God, completely remove this temptation from me. And the fact of the matter is, is that will not actually come true until Jesus comes. But in the meantime, you don't quit. You don't stop fighting. You don't stop um, memorizing scripture, getting your head around what it means to, to behold the beauty of Christ. You don't give up. You just keep trusting. You keep fighting because it's incremental. So it's helpful for the perfectionist. It's also helpful for the person who's, frankly, full of pride, who thinks that they do a lot better than most people. And they look at other people who are kind of struggling and like, yeah, well, you should be like me. Oh, you would never say that because you know it's not cool to say that to other people. But internally you think it. And the reality is, is your progress is incremental. It's not maybe as great as what you think it really is. The hope is that God through Christ is changing us. And that's point number five, which is we're being changed into the same image. In other words, at the end of the day, what God's aim is, is that we grow incrementally and we end up looking more like Jesus. And then he comes and we see him and we're like him and God has fulfilled his intention and fulfilled his purpose. So what does spiritual maturity look like in your life and in mine? What does high school look like versus elementary? It looks like you better look more like Jesus, that as you get older, the crazy thing is, is it's you, but as you're growing, your appearance is changing. And at the end of the day, when you get towards the latter part of your life, it's crazy. You still look like you, but you also look like somebody else. And another person is you look a lot like Jesus. This is the vision of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.27 when he said this, To them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. And then finally, just to be sure all of this happens, 
God empowers it by His Spirit. Verse 18 ends with this, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I love the fact that it concludes here. We're given a reminder that God is the one who does this work in you, and He does it by His Spirit. In other words, there's something greater at work in you than just you. It's the Spirit of God who regenerates you. When those when that veil came off, that was the Spirit of God coming. In fact, it may be today that that veil is starting to come off. And suddenly, what I'm saying to you is making sense like it's never made sense before. And I'm telling you, that thing that's happening to you, it is not you. That is the Spirit of the living God coming and unveiling your eyes to see the beauty of what the Bible calls the gospel in order to draw you to Christ. It's the Spirit of God who changes you. It's the Spirit of God who empowers you. It's the Spirit of God who keeps you all the way to the end. Are you involved? Do you believe? Do you decide? Absolutely. But you do not do it alone. In the end, what happens to you in the new birth is a spiritual miracle. It means that God takes the inside of who you are and changes you and sets you on a new path, He puts within you a glory that you could never have on your own. So today, I would, I would implore you, invite you, whatever I could do, that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never been born again, if you're trying to make your way through life, but the inside of you has never been fundamentally altered, if you've never turned from your sins and invited Christ to be your Savior, I am telling you, you are trying to deal with sin and issues and challenges in a way that God never intended. And I want to plead with you today that at the end of this service, there's going to be people up here at the front who would like nothing more than to pray over you and to have you receive Christ and today to be a different person from the inside out. I'm telling you, Jesus can change your life today. He can change you from the inside out. He can take you and make you renewed. And then if you can think of a time in your life when you, that that happened. I was regenerated. I saw Christ. I beheld Him and I became a follower of His. Then let me charge you and tell you this. You have to keep beholding. You have to keep beholding. You have to keep transforming. You have to keep changing and keep trusting and keep walking in the Spirit. You have to answer the question today, what is this Sunday all about? Why are you here? Why in God's providence does He have you here on this Lord's Day? What is it that God by His Spirit is calling you to be, to do, or to change? Second Thessalonians says this, We're to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. So what is this day about? It's about something. What is it that God is saying? What is it today that you're seeing about you, about Christ, and about the kingdom? In a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. These are great emblems that help us to be reminded of what it is that God has done for us in Christ. In a moment, we're going to receive these. These are part of the story of beholding. And I just don't want you to miss. Don't just take these elements. Behold them. Because they're meant for that. Lord Jesus, help us now to receive these elements, to be a part of your work, 
and to see the beauty of what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to not just receive bread and juice, but to be people whose lives are transformed incrementally, but transformed nonetheless because of what we do now in response to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.